Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. I've seen quite a few videos on social media recently of young women soliciting help in finding the perfect dress for graduation. Might I suggest you add Macy's to your list? They have lots of options for dresses that will transition perfectly from under your gown to that incredible dinner with family after the ceremony. Check out options from brands like On 34th, Michael Kors, DKNY, and many more. Shop at Macy's.com or in-store. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Support for today's podcast comes from Helix. If you've been listening for some time, you know that me and my Helix mattress have been in a very happy relationship for the past five months. But y'all, I got some bamboo sheets last week and my sleep is now on the next level. Highly recommend. The thing I love most about Helix, besides the comfort, is that I was able to take a two-minute quiz that matches your body type and sleep preference to the perfect mattress for you. Ordering is very easy and delivery is super fast. If you're looking for an upgrade to the way you sleep, I'd encourage you to check out Helix for a mattress shipped straight to your door with free no-contact delivery, 
completely free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. And just for y'all, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash therapy for black girls. Just go to helixsleep.com slash therapy for black girls, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 181 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. Whew, it's been a week, hasn't it? Going into last week, I thought I had a pretty good plan of how I was going to support myself through Election Day. But I hadn't really thought too much about what to do in the days following. I would imagine that lots of you have pretty complicated feelings these days as well. So I wanted two of my friends and colleagues to join me this week to do a little reflecting on what many of us might be feeling right now. For this conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Joy Beckwith and Dr. Ayana Abrams, who joined us in session 36 of the podcast to chat about couples counseling. Dr. Beckwith is a clinical psychologist, resident radio expert, and college professor. She's a graduate of Spelman College, Rollins School of Public Health, and Emory University, where she served as the chief clinician. Dr. Joy can be heard weekly in 30 states on the nationally syndicated radio show, The Nightly Spirit, where listeners get their weekly dose of encouragement and callers can ask for on-air advice regarding their most pressing dilemmas. Additionally, she develops seminars and workshops for organizations and corporations nationwide and is the co-founder of the Carrefour Psychological Health Institute in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Abrams is a licensed clinical psychologist also in Georgia and the CEO and founder of Ascension Behavioral Health. She's also the co-founder of Not So Strong, an initiative to improve the mental health and relationship functioning of Black women through the use of vulnerable storytelling. Her specialties include racism-based trauma, anxiety, depression, and other mood disorders, entrepreneurial mental health, and relationship and marital counseling. She has extensive clinical experience working with people of color, specifically Black women, Black men, and Black couples. During our chat, we discussed how we're feeling post-election, how many of the feelings we're experiencing are the result of the trauma we've endured at the hands of our government, these ideas about Black women saving the world, and we discussed the power of representation and what it means to have Vice President-elect Kamala Harris preparing to take office. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share it with us on social media using the hashtag TBG in session. Here's our conversation. 
I am so excited that y'all were able to join me. I appreciate my sister psychologist. I just jumped into the group chat like, hey, y'all free to chat this week? Because I definitely felt like we needed to do a whole debriefing session post-election. So I want to just hear, maybe you can start as Dr. A, what have you been feeling kind of in the immediate aftermath post-election? The question, my best way to describe it is, is I'm mixy. I'm feeling mixy, um, so, okay. so, which is for me a mix of feeling relieved, a little bit of hope has come back, but I got my eye on things, mm-hmm. right? So I haven't kind of know, deeply, deeply gone into a space of relief just yet. I'm still kind of holding out for some things, but my body does feel a little bit looser and lighter, I will definitely say, than where it was last week. Mm-hmm. What about you, Dr. Joy? Probably somewhat similar. I think I feel, for the lack of a better word, tender. Mm. I think I think because so I'm in this space where I think it can go in any direction. So I cried, you know, a whole lot recently, and I think it just feels like okay, should I exhale a little bit or wait a second? I just feel tender, so I'm not quite ready to be on any side yet. I'm still. Cautiously optimistic is it's kind of what I'm feeling is like, okay, well, you know, we can, you know, feel joy. Okay, well, not too much joy. It's like, okay, so it's a little tender spot. I feel very, very tender. And that's how I've been presenting myself. So I don't have this overwhelming sense of like joy, but I do feel joy. And I don't have this overwhelming sense of relief, but I do feel relief. And so it's just a really, really mixed tender spot that I'm in. Very mm-hmm. tender. Yeah, I I appreciate those reflections, you know, so I also like, I feel like I have been really shocked by my reaction, because Mm -hmm. I don't know that I consciously knew like how much I was holding in. So kind of immediately after the race was called for Biden, I just like broke into tears and spent much of Saturday crying, right? A mix of kind of like, joy, like you're mentioning, Dr. Joy, of kind of seeing people in the streets celebrating and kind of also relieved. But also just, oh, my gosh, like this was really bad. Right. And so Mm -hmm. and so not even recognizing Mm -hmm. that I was holding on to so much stress related to the fact that we have been under such a cruel, cruel reign in a lot of ways for the past four years. That speaks to me that that part about realizing in in some way, like knowing it was bad, but not not being able to kind of fully encompass how bad it was. And I think that's part of what I, where I was on Saturday. Cause it's like, it's been this bad. There's a part of me that still hasn't let go of that just yet. So I think that's part of my mixie as well. Like, uh, don't, don't just jump into, you know, relief too soon. Like it's been so bad for so long that there's a part of it that my body just hasn't really been able to shake just yet. Like it hasn't been enough time. It's only been 48 hours for me to kind of move through some of those emotions. So I'm still in the parts of it. And also because it's, it's we're not fully right out of it. Where I just, I, I have not been able to take the full leap into hope and to the future just yet. Dr. A, that's it. I think that's the part where it's tender. It's just like, okay, do I dance a little bit or wait, do I hold off? Because it's like, well, there is some relief and there is some joy, but we're still in it. And so it's like, what do you feel when it's not completely over? You're not completely out of it yet. What I was sharing with my family, I said, you know, I I realized much like you, Dr. Joy, that I had been holding my breath and I did not know that I've been holding my breath. And I think how to describe that is, I think often, and maybe this is, and you know, just for me, I think to get by on low supply 
like low oxygen isn't foreign to me. I think we often just get by. We often keep going. We often push through. And much like you, Dr. Joy, I didn't realize like how much my low supply was low and that I had been holding my breath until that shower where I cried. And it was just like a, you know, that type of cry. And it's like, okay, girl, what is that? You know, and where did that come from? But really digging that deep and crying that deeply, realizing like, wow, you have been holding some stuff for quite some time. But then even catching yourself, it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. Like, what does this cry symbolize? You know, because you're still kind of in it. In it. And I think for me, like once you've been traumatized and you feel like you've been, you know, traumatized for so long, you know, there's this hesitation to like, okay, well, what's next? You know, what will come next? Should you be celebrating? You know, are you celebrating too soon? Mm-hmm. It's a lot. I'm glad you brought up that word, Dr. Joy, traumatized, because I really mm-hmm. feel that that is what most of us are experiencing and didn't even necessarily know to call it that, right? And so I think, you know, we are all psychologists. And so we know what it means to kind of work with someone who has been traumatized. And so I think it's important to also think about what this might feel like if you do already have a history of trauma, right? So I think Mm -hmm. I had been spending a lot of time leading up to like election day, thinking about the fact that how traumatized I felt waking up four years ago and finding out that Hillary had not won the election, right? And so in some ways I had been kind of bracing myself for like revisiting the scene, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would have had more of a reaction on Tuesday, right? But it wasn't actually until after the race was called that I had the reactions. I wonder if you all can maybe speak to that, like this whole new experience of trauma that we've all had from the government for four years in light of anybody who's had a past history of trauma. I think that that, you know, that activation, as we've seen, is showing up very different for people. Right. There are some people who have talked about, you know, being more desensitized and numbed out. Right. That they don't even turn on for the past few years. They haven't even turned on press conferences anymore. They've just kind of shut it off. They don't look at the tweet. They don't do any of that anymore. And I think that's one way in which people respond to right trauma. Another way that people respond to trauma is they're activated by it. They're looking at all the stuff. They're looking at all the news. They're sharing all the the awful things that we've kind of seen and heard over and over and over and over, right? So all of that makes sense in terms of um, the differences or the different ways in in which how people process or manifest, right, their trauma. We're either talking about it a lot, right? Or, you know, you see people who are just like, no, I can't, I can't even go there. I can't even take any more of this stuff in. Um, And that has its own implications, right? If you are more numbed out, it means you can't feel other things. But we've been seeing that for the last few years, right? Just depending on where you are in terms of how you process and how you cope. I don't tend to hold things as, you know, actively emotional. I'm probably more of one of the numbing, like withdrawers, which doesn't mean I'm not impacted by it. But I think I've been so impacted that now my body's like, mm, mm-mm, we can't take no motives. So I'm not watching. I'm not reading stuff. I'm not retweeting stuff, any of that. But yeah, I think for me, it was very, very similar. But like realizing this influx of emotions. And then being able to label them like, okay, this feels like trauma to me. So, you know, going through where I'm feeling these strong sense of sadness, the strong sense of anxiety, really feeling exhausted, really, you know, you kind of describing like a dissociation from this stuff. It's just like, man, what is going on? Feeling like this is the twilight zone to a certain extent. 
And even having like, you know, not being able to rest, not being able to disconnect. So the hypervigilance of it all, feeling like I need to protect myself, like what's mm-hmm. going on? I need to watch the news. I need to read what's happening here. I need to be on this side. Like, what are they saying? What are the possibilities? So really finding myself on several ends of it, sometimes really, really being overly engrossed in it and then realizing like, well, okay, well, I thought I was doing that to you know, protect myself to better inform myself. But as a result, I am more anxious. So pulling away from it and then the depression and what comes along with it, with that, the sadness of being out of the know or the sadness of like, I don't know what's going to happen or feeling as if things are out of your control or that something horrible can happen to you at any moment. So I went through, I guess, uh, you know, a spectrum of all of those emotions and really trying to figure out, okay, girl, so what's the balance? Because too little is not good for you and you're not liking that feeling, but also too much is, it's too much and you're not good for yourself nor anyone else. So avoidance wasn't the answer nor kind of hitting it head on either. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. But once mm-hmm. I experienced all of the emotions, hearing, oh, I was like, oh, it's trauma. I was going to say, as I, as I was listening to myself talk and also listening to what you know Dr. Joy was saying I think I and a lot of my clients and a lot of particularly other black women who I've talked to I think a lot of us have also transferred or kind of transformed a lot of that traumatic energy into overfunctioning in other areas of our lives I have worked so much I have seen so many clients I have done like so much work and I've really like honed in on my focus of like listen we all we got so I'm gonna do whatever I can for the black people, my client, my couples, my groups, my individuals, my companies. So I do think that I've transferred a lot of that energy into work without having enough of a cap on it, right? In terms of that balance, because there was just so much energy there. And I've talked to my clients a lot about that over the years, even if we didn't explicitly kind of plug it into, right, the regime, right, and kind of the trauma of, you know, our leadership and government. But I wouldn't be surprised, right, if people can look at the last four years and notice a remarkable difference or a marked difference in how they were functioning. Mm. I would love to hear both of you really talk about how people might be able to kind of pick that apart for themselves, right? So now that we are, it feels like we can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? How they can begin to kind of make sense and even kind of explore some of all of what they might be feeling. What suggestions would you have? You know, I think our tendency, Dr. A, is is to control the controllables. And we start Mm -hmm. to feel whenever we feel like things are you know, out of control, we really go into like, okay, this response, we want to control the controllables. And so we put that energy towards what we feel like is able to be controlled. But now that we're able to breathe a little bit, now that we're able to exhale a little bit, for me to take a step back and to say, okay, so what is, like, what is existing? Because what we do know is that there's some of the things that happen or some of the ways that we responded that aren't necessarily a bad way you know, a bad response to the trauma. So for those of us who decided to lean in a little bit more with our family members, to lean in a little bit more on our girl group, our circles, for those of us who started journaling, so engaging in other ways of self-care, meditation, there's some of those things that, hey, they could benefit from staying. Like, let me not throw that away. But then to look at the parts that Dr. A said, you know, where did I overextend myself, overexert myself? So what is, So just because I know I can work 60 hours a week and just because I know like, hey, I'm keyed up, basically, that doesn't really work for me in terms of sustaining myself. And so I believe in looking at what is now. So now that I'm breathing, now that my my vision is not as cloudy, now that I'm able to get a good night's sleep or a better night's sleep, 
to really look at what is and to take evaluation of, you know, what are the things that need to stay and what are the things that need to go? And then kind of getting some things in place to know that it doesn't have to happen all at once. There is some self-compassion to look to say, I now know or I can connect with why I did that, why I engaged in that behavior and how that suited me then, but may not be best for me now. And to start getting rid of some of those things, dividing up some of those tasks and really figuring out how can we keep that? Because as the world reopens and as life kind of gets back to this new sense of normalness, what needs to stay? And how can I keep those things and don't go back to that, the person that I once was that, hey, she wasn't as happy either. So yeah. So self-evaluation, I think inventory is going to be so, so important. So how did I respond to this? Um, what did I start? Or what do I need to start now that I'm out of that? I've been in survival mode so long. Maybe now do I need to go to therapy or start some therapy so that I can kind of work on some of this stuff that has come up for me during that time period, during the last couple of years, or even with this pandemic, the last couple of months, like what am I recognizing now that I cannot run from it? The fact that now that I can do these things in terms of escaping some of these things. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't add too much more to that in terms of that inventory of what's been working, what's not been working, you know, what has been the implications, right, of any coping skills you've been engaging in or kind of who you've been connecting to. And as you see yourself now and as we're kind of moving into a new, not only year, but new, you know, presidency, right, new kind of leadership in this way, are there ways in which we have been connected and involved in it that have felt really healthy? I know what has increased for a lot of people is a sense of advocacy, some boundary setting, right, around who they are engaging with, whether it be workspaces, family, peers, community, like neighborhood stuff, as well as getting more connected in like campaigns and just kind of knowing what's going on, right, in not only their, you know, immediate communities in the nation, but also in the world, right, people finding ways to be more informed of things, but being able to, you know, kind of create what you want, at particularly at least the, the top of next year, to look like in terms of how connected you have been. And only you will know if you have been quote, hyper or kind of overconnected versus kind of feeling a little bit more balanced in that. But that inventory is really important and not a one-time thing, right? You also get to take inventory at the top of next year. You get to take inventory a few months later just to see where any of what is going on that we can't, you know, foresee right now is landing for you. I think the other piece I've been thinking about a little bit more with that is what I'm hearing some people talk about and some people be able to speak to is while there is some sense of relief that we are, you know, moving into this new leadership that can feel hopeful and joyful and encouraged. Um, for some people, it doesn't feel too far from what we've been in because of who the president is, right? The president is still a white man, right? The president still is in a position of, you know, privilege and power that historically has not been that safe for us. So I also recognize, you know, some of the skepticism around like, yeah, I don't want to, you know, remove it too far, right? And give him too much credit for this, right? Particularly when it's been Black women who are still doing a lot of the work and a lot of the heavy lifting. So for some of us, nothing's changing. Mm -hmm. For some of us, it's just like, yeah, we keep on trucking like we've been trucking, right? We keep on taking care of ourselves the way we have been taking care of ourselves because we've never really trusted government, right? So I also recognize that, that those feelings of relief might not be as present for some people because this doesn't feel too different in terms of the, the larger social justice structure of our government. Very good points, Dr. A. Dr. A, it's so funny. I was reading something very recently that spoke to just that. It said, you know, how do you survive as a Black woman in a society that worships whiteness and particularly a white male? And so as we have this, this new president, you know, those things still remain. 
And so, you know, where people are hesitant to move forward, hesitant to feel this huge sense of hope, I think what these last couple of years have reminded us of what we already know is that we are survivors. We will survive. And to not put our trust and our faith and our hope in that person, but to bring it back to us. It's like, you know, my trust, my faith is in my ability to survive, but also, you know, what the pandemic taught us or what the last couple of years have taught me is just the power of my village, the power of the collective, the power Mm -hmm. of, you know, all of us to come together and what we can do and what happens when that does happen. So it doesn't matter who is there. Those things, you're right, Dr. A, they have been the same. We heard Biden say, you know, we have had his back and he hopes to have ours. Well, you know what? Mm -hmm. We've heard stories like that before, too. And so, you know, how much of that do we totally say, okay, yay, and put our faith in? Like, we don't have faith necessarily in our government. It hasn't been on our side. So what do we put our faith in? What do we put our hope in? And what is it that we can trust? And one thing for sure, you know, what the world has found out is that you can trust a Black woman. But I think that's something that we know, too, to be able to trust each other, to see how much we have supported each other, how much we have held each other down in this country, frankly. Mm-hmm. So going back to that, like mm-hmm. what feels solid to us, returning to that. Mm-hmm. So I want to stay with this idea for a little bit, because, of course, you know, over the past week, there have been all of these, you know, celebrations and exclamations about how Black women mm-hmm. have saved democracy, right? And like you said, Dr. Joy, you know, we know that Black women show up and show out. Like that is kind of who we are in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But it also feels like we have to pay attention to what Dr. A has also mentioned, that it feels like for a lot of us, our kind of primary coping mechanism is to overfunction, right? And so it, it kind of feels like I have complicated feelings around Black women being celebrated for service, right? I mean, of course, we want to be of service. You know, I think that that is something that a lot of mm-hmm. us value. But I struggle with this idea that it feels like there is just this, you know, effusive praise for Black women when it feels like they are in service and they're saving other people that then makes it really hard for us not to feed into this strong Black woman narrative, right? So if we know we get all this praise for kind of doing the things we've mm-hmm. done, how are we making sure to kind of check that and make sure that we're also saving some for ourselves? Yeah. And I think the complicated is really the best way to describe that kind of paradox, right? Because in us continuing to show up for ourselves, right, other people also get to benefit off of this, but it creates this complacency there, right? Where we kind of get this praise. And I remember I just, you know, made a post saying, you know, you can you can praise us and do all of this, but well, how are you actually treating us? Right? You the, the you know the, the love of the black woman's vote, but like, do you love black women? What does that look like? in your life? Do you pay us? Do you respect us? Right? So how does that actually show up day to day versus you love what we can contribute so that you have to do less work? All right. And that is a paradox that we have not been able to move out of. We will only actually be able to shift out of that kind of paradigm when white people begin to do more work, particularly white women, begin to do some more of their own work. But I think we're still right in, right in the, the middle of that phase of how that's still shows up. I don't think we would have done anything differently because it all trickles down to us in some way and we will always bear the the worst brunt of it all. So I don't think we would show up any less, but it means that we still have to deal with what it means that other people feel so relieved that we've done the work for them again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. A, complex is the only word to describe that. It is very tender and it's very heartbreaking in a sense where 
to think of Black women is synonymous with strength, synonymous with being strong. It does not mean that it is not heavy. And I think that's the part that they don't see because we carry it so well. It is heavy. And it is heartbreaking because if we look at everything that we have to carry in the sense of just dealing with violence, you know, violence mm-hmm. within our families in terms of our Black men, in terms of economic inequalities or economic instabilities, like all of those things, when we think about how hard we have to work in order to obtain, attain, maintain, all of that, it just becomes mm-hmm. so much. And so I think it is a process. You're right. I think others have to do the work too, Dr. A. And us making sure that as strong as we are, that we are also being that for ourselves too. Like, what does that look like when I use the strength to take care of myself? We are carrying the burden of democracy for an entire country that routinely and systematically oppresses us. And so I am mindful of what has happened here. We are showing up. And I think the reason that we're showing up, Dr. A, you hinted at it. It's mainly because I think the only thing or one of the only tools that we feel that we have that gives us hope for equality is our democracy. So that's what it is. It's like, well, we know what happens Mm. if we don't show up. We know what what happens if we don't advocate like this, if we don't show up and show out. I mean, you know the numbers. So what if we had sat down on this? And Mm -hmm. and so what would have happened and to whom it would have happened to? It goes back to us in terms of our economic instability, in terms of our job insecurity, in terms of the violence that are happening. It comes back to us. So we have no choice at the end of the day but to show up the way that we show up. And so I think it is basically using some of that strength to require others to do their work, too. That's the thing. It's like you can't sit back and require us. We already know how strong we are. We know how powerful Mm -hmm. we are. We know what exists. It's like it's really we don't have to pull the blinders off of your eyes. It's like you need to open your eyes so that you can see, too. And so it's a whole complicated mess, but we understand why we showed up the way we had to show up. We frankly did not have another choice. Yeah, that's the murkiness of, and as we were talking about this as as an abusive relationship, that's the murkiness of codependent relationships, right? That we learn, right? That if I don't do it, it won't be done, right? Mm -hmm. And then I have to, I will be front of all the negative consequences if you do not do this thing. So it's, it's really hard to get out of. It's really hard to separate yourself from when this has been our life, right? That this hasn't been a, a one year or two year or six month, you know, thing that we can maybe, we have seen ourselves in other ways. This is how a lot of Black women know themselves, right? So it can be really mm-hmm. easy to say like, no, just do it differently. Just don't do this or don't do this. But it's it, complicated and complex, right, is the word. Right. This is a an abusive codependent relationship with the government. Yeah. And that's the part that I really struggle with. Right. Because it's like we yeah. keep showing up. Like when is there mm-hmm. ever time for us like to be taken care of? And just like any abusive relationship, what happens? It's like, you know, they give us, you know, stimulus checks and little small gifts, things here to make the pain not be so bad. It's like, you know, well, hey, this is supposed to hold you over or you know, here are the flowers, you know, to kind of make up for, you know, the, the pain and the, the abuse that I've caused you. And it's just like, no. And so it's this cycle, this thing that keeps continuing, this codependent relationship. It's like, well, you know, I do need to do this. Or you hang it over our heads. It's like, well, once you vote for me or once this happens, then I will release perhaps maybe the second stimulus check. And so, you know, how do we get ourselves in this situation where it is very, very mimicking of an abusive relationship? And then when do we get out and how do we get out of it? Mm -hmm. To go back to what Dr. Joy was saying, like, when is enough enough? Right. 
Right. And I see that as an opening for, and I, I've appreciated some people also being able to speak to this, like, hey, I can hold my joy, attend to it. I can hold feeling relief and encouragement, but there's still accountability there. We can still kind of use these experiences, say, hey, we have heard this before. Hey, you are calling on us, right, in this way where you are thanking us and you are praising us, but this is what we're still asking for, right? So not, not letting up, right, and that kind of accountability and those kinds of demands that says, hey, this is how you actually take care of us not just in words, not just in praise in the first 48 hours, right? But this is what we are looking for. I think that is also something that, that can allow us to feel a little bit more empowered in the transition of this process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We may have to remind some of our people of our, our famous little statement that support is a verb. So you say you are an ally. It's like there are multiple ways. To mm-hmm. And so how do you show up? Yeah, how do you show us that you support us? You know, it's more than just what you say, but it is in what and how and what you do. So holding them accountable. But I think for us too to be aware of what is it that we want to, you know, what are some things that they can do? So when when they do want to put some action behind it, what does that look like for us? Yeah, and holding mm-hmm. people accountable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You didn't say anything in the meeting. Huh. <laughs> yeah, they love to come to your office after the meeting is over, right? And say, Oh, that's after the a great meeting. Point. Huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like really you enjoyed it. Didn't wouldn't have known. Yeah, mm-hmm. and us being able to stand in that back, too, back I channel. Able to... I was gonna say to do yeah. a back channel in the email, like really, really great thing you said. But I wish I had those words for that. You were just that was so spot on. But you didn't CC everybody on that. You sent that <laughs> uh-huh. to just me. Uh-huh. And I think that's part of it. We're tired. We're tired of the back door, the back channeling of like, oh, really great points. And we're tired of you stopping by the offices at the very end to say, you know what, great job today. And really being able to stand into that, like, you know, it would have been really great to hear you say that in the meeting today. And that's it. And leaving it there. And you need to sit in that discomfort knowing that, you know what, you could have shown me that in a number of other ways. This little stop by my office is not one of them. Mm -hmm. See see you folks. So the other thing that I think has been really complicated for people is the idea that, and I don't know that a lot of us, but I think some of us thought that the election would not have been as close as it has been, right? Mm. And so so we are also left dealing with the idea that over 70 million people saw everything that this administration has done, saw how many people have died, saw no real leadership and said, yes, sign me up for another four years of this, right? And so I find myself feeling then really anxious about like who to trust, right? Like how do I know where you fall on this side of things? So I'm wondering if you all can maybe speak to that, just the idea that so many people still decided to vote for this administration. Yeah. You know, I think that speaks to a lot of newer, I don't think new to us, but newer conversations, particularly since the murder of George Floyd, where there are more non-Black communities talking about the difference between being a passive non-racist, right, and an active anti-racist, right? And those are ways in which I had already kind of been engaging, like, hey, if I don't hear anything like actively from you, then I don't put nothing past you. If I can't see it, then I can't really vouch right, for you or kind of vouch for how you feel about me or my family or my loved ones or my culture or any of those things until I see some willingness, right, to get uncomfortable, until I see some willingness to be inconvenienced, until I see some openness to whatever losses might come with, right, you speaking up in these ways. So I'd already kind of moved to a bit of a position in that way. So this didn't surprise me. And as much as it was still uncomfortable, it's like, dang, 
okay, y'all had a chance. Oh, here we are, right? Not only that, y'all had a chance, more of y'all voted, right, than four years ago, right? The percentages went up. So I don't feel myself too deflated or defeated, but it really hasn't changed what I look for. And I don't really, I don't call them allies. They tend to call themselves allies, but I don't look for that anymore, right? I do, right? I, what I will pay attention to, right, is if you are actively anti-racist. That's what I put. But other than that, I'm not giving praise. I'm not doing all this. I'm not doing this, you know, public appreciation of particularly non-Black people who, who will speak out against things. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a like, but I'm not going to do all, all this work to give you a whole bunch of praise in terms of that, what I find as, you know, kind of basic social justice, right, and kind of human rights work. But I've always had my eye on how actively someone is willing right, to engage in that, in that work. So the two closeness has been uncomfortable, but not too surprising for me. You know, like it was just confirming right, what I was already thinking in terms of like how performative was six months ago? How performative was June and July? This is only a few months ago. And look. Right. We're not even so far from all the black squares and all the money donated to, to and all the DMs that we've had and all the podcast requests that we've had and all the company talks we've been doing. We're not even far removed. And y'all are already over it. Oh, OK. <laughs> OK, absolutely. So I'm with you. Today. <laughs> I I wasn't surprised but still somewhat like hoping for something better. It's like you see it and you're just like, yeah. you know, dang, I was really hoping that we would have turned the corner. But yes, it's more of an active anti-racist because I too, I saw like, oh, we, we um, passed the black squares now. So there's nothing else after the black square, which did not include a caption, by the way, but after the black square, you know, there is nothing else. So I'm really looking at how do you show up? It goes back to what our parents taught us a long time ago. Actions speak louder than words. And so you know what you're saying this, you put up your little black square, you sent some DMs, you liked some stuff, and you posted up pictures with you and your black friends or your black colleague. That's not enough for me. And you cried. Hello. Why were you crying? I don't even know why you're crying because just like the black squares, it did not come with any type of caption. So you could have been crying for a number of other reasons. I'm not sure. This has resulted in me having trust issues. I got trust issues. And so that's it. It's like you build it. It's like, girl, I trust you because of what I've seen over the last couple of months or whatever. It works in the opposite direction. I have trust issues because of what I have not seen. You have not actively been an anti-racist. And so you know what? Okay. But you're still out. And I'm mm-hmm. operating in that. And they've been crying this week, the too. Gone, they was gone. crying the last week. They was crying this weekend. They've been crying for the last five months. And I just, what, what are you, what, what? We still don't know why. We don't know what the tears are about. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, don't know. we don't know why, though. That's the thing. Put some word behind it. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-mm. So it's more so being active. I got to mm-hmm. see it. Got to see it. So we also know that, and I am not at all shocked by the behavior that the president is having related to losing mm. the election, right? So we knew... He was not going to be a gracious loser. But I also, this is another part of my anxiety, am concerned about what the next 70 plus days looks like, Mm -hmm. right? Because we do know that there's something going on there, right? And so Mm -hmm. I don't know that we are able to accurately gauge just how like ridiculous he might not become within the next couple of days. So can you both speak to kind of like your thoughts about that? Or, you know, we've been using the kind of language of an abusive relationship, which is mm-hmm. the, the format that really fits. 
I'm wondering, related to that kind of a framework, what are your thoughts about like what the next couple of months might be like? I find myself not super actively, but just, you know, preparing for a series of tantrums, right? Preparing for a series of, you know, power plays, things that we're not unfamiliar with, right? Over the past few years, but they'll look a little bit different at this point, right? This is the the grasp, right? When someone is losing power, it's becoming as as real as, as maybe the presidency or the White House will be able to let in. I don't think it'll go too deeply, but we're going to see a whole bunch of grabs at anything. And with those grabs, not only comes a, you know, it's a grief response, the denial, right, of what is happening and that it's real, but then you move into anger phases. What that anger will look like, right, is anything that mischaracterizes, right, the quote-unquote opposing side or mischaracterizes the people. But I think it'll just be a mix of all of those things. I don't think there's going to be a moving through the full, through all the stages of grief in the next, you know, 70-something days. I think we're going to be bouncing back and forth between denial and anger, denial, anger, denial, anger. And that's going to take us through until January, what is it, January 20, whatever day it is in January. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll get to a little bit of the bargaining right stage, but I don't think we're going too deep past any of that. Listen, I don't know if we'll ever see acceptance. <laughs> I, I agree. So, you know, we, as we go through those stages, but... Mm-mm. So I think what the things that you mentioned are exactly right. We're talking about tantrums. We're talking about outbursts and power plays. Yes, I think whenever we see a person who feels like they have lost control, when they feel a sense of shame or humiliation, all of those things Mm -hmm. kind of raise this flag for us that says, you know what, we have to be prepared for some type of bullying behavior, some type of rage, some type of outburst, some type of aggression. And so it's one of those things where if you know that cows move, it's being aware that cows move. So when they start to move, you know, like, oh, dang, there's that sound. We expected it. We knew that it would come. And I think that's what we're all saying. We see the perceived loss of power or loss of control. We see what could be, you know, interpreted as shame or humiliation. And so when these denials start to kind of come out or when this anger starts to come out, it's like, okay, there it is. We knew it was coming. And, you know, we can only hope and pray that, you know, there's a limit to it. You know, the other thing that is really confusing, I think, but not so confusing, is just the fact that there are so many other people who are buying into this with him, right? So it it Mm. feels like there is a circle of advisors and, you know, his people who are all kind of feeding into this, you know? So it's like, is there no one who will kind of step aside and say, hey, okay, we really need to, to make a plan to kind of lose this graciously or in the benefit of the democracy, you know, this is our plan for kind of transitioning. Like, I think that that's the part that makes it really difficult as well. Yeah, I I agree. I am actually seeing at least some more mumblings of uh, some people in his camp, at least being able to say like, hey, let's call it, let's do this. Let's not, you know, go against the, you know, democratic process. But, you know, as I think about this all in the, the frame or context of power and privilege, I also recognize that people are still attached to that level of power that they have. And if I do too much now, what does that mean for what I might lose in the future? right? It's all the the proximity to power that's still really at play. So there's a part of me that while I can feel, I do feel, you know, disappointed and still confused by it when I'm able to root it in that power structure, it makes a lot of sense, right? They want to still be in proximity to the access of whatever power and whatever social capital they get from it now, because he represents a loss of that. And in some ways, I also still see that I think he's also traumatized people who are around him, 
So I wouldn't be surprised if people also feel scared. Mm -hmm. Right. There's been a move of the needle internally. I don't think that everyone around there feels safe enough to say it outside, to say it kind of out loud right to him. And that's an impact right of that kind of manipulation. He has silenced people. I'm interested to kind of see what happens over the next few weeks and kind of in the spring, because I think we're also going to hear a lot of stories about what the last four years have been like for people. I think a lot of that stuff is going to come out over the next few years. But again, it also just it mimics the silencing that can happen, right, in a really, really toxic relationship. I do not feel safe enough to say any of this stuff right now because I need a job. I need a this. This is where I live. Like whatever the, the factors might be at play. So I'm hoping that even that some of those people can also feel safe enough, at least after a few weeks from now, to find safety and then to begin, right, kind of narrating their own story. I think some people are still too close to it now. The other people, I hope there's consequences for a number of things that have happened. I do have some faith that there are some people in there who are just really conflicted mm-hmm. because of those same reasons. I totally agree, Dr. A. I think that's the saving grace. I feel like, you know, just like with all toxic relationships, it's like, well, things don't really start to come out and people don't normally start to really talk about, you know, what it's been like until they are out, until they know that they are safe or have a sense of feeling uh, safe again, that their their livelihood is not being threatened. But you're also right. There is something to be said about wanting to hold on to power and privilege and everything that comes along with that. And so it's funny because when I was thinking about this too, like, hey, there's no one around him who's being able to say like, hey, okay, you know, we should, you know, for the sake of our country. But then I thought about it. I think that perhaps, I don't know all of them, but perhaps some of those people, they were released a long time ago. So you do remember when we were doing the Mm -hmm. shuffling of the board? It's Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, we have a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of people. And so the ones that we have who are remaining, it's like they're in it and they're deep in this toxic relationship. And so it's not as easy to to really say, hey, you know, hey, let's back off of this. It's like, nope, a lot of things are tied to this power and privilege. If you go back to even this, the terror management theory, when it talks about the existential crisis in terms of, you know, maintaining, maintaining or holding on to, you know, these parts that exist because you're wondering what happens to me if this crumbles. So if in fact, you know, this power goes away, or if in fact, this privilege goes away, or if in fact, all of this stuff starts to crumble, then what happens? me. So then it's like, well, what's driving you? What's making it where I'm holding on to this? It may look like to us that, you know, you know, you're, you're a part of that, or you agree fully with that, where then in fact, there's something else that is driving. And it's like, you're really afraid of what is at stake for you. Yeah. It's tough. Mm -hmm. tough. So the part that has been most joyful for me has been Kamala Harris, of course, being our first female, black female, first woman of Indian descent, vice president-elect, right? And so, you know, I know we are all very excited about that. Dr. Joy and I are both members of Alpha Kappa Alpha, so she's a sorority sister. You know, so there's just a lot of pride and a lot of excitement about what she represents. And we've said this before on the podcast, of course, representation is not enough, but it is something, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we can kind of take away what this means to a lot of people. So I'd love to hear both of you just kind of talk about like the importance of her representation. I think that's very important. I'm also going to plug that she's also Caribbean. Don't forget she's Caribbean. Listen now. Listen now. My apologies. You're right. You're right. Uh, all of us. I love it, Dr. A. Yes. Um, I mean, representation is important when you when I was just looking at posts, not only of 
you know, adult women and, and, you know, what this means for us, but all the posts about the little girls, all the posts when you saw the little girls up at the screens and, you know, the little girls saying like, oh, and whether that be little black girls or Southeast Asian girls, right? Just being able to kind of say like, oh, okay, this isn't as far-fetched anymore right so i I have i have loved to see that kind of joy and that kind of encouragement and that kind of empowerment in terms of the imagery there and what i've also loved is that she has been willing and open to speak directly to it right that it's not just about her showing up in these ways and then and then the the government gets to kind of use her right as that but she has named black women in this she is talking about her Southeast Asian past. She is talking about her mother. She is talking about her family lineage. That's what feels really, really important, that there is a narrative that we can't make up and put on her because she's not speaking about it. Mm. That's what I, that I even think is even more powerful than the imagery, right? But that she is calling this out, and that will be something that, that sounds like it will be spoken by both of them, her and president-elect, actively. And that's what I'm looking forward to seeing. I'm not just here as, as a presence and you get to project all this stuff onto me. These are my words about who I am. Dr. A, I think, oh my gosh. So the same thing for me, just the joy that I feel when I see little girls, uh, when I saw the little girls looking at the television screen or seeing these little girls on her lap and just like, you know, just touching yes. her to be able to see yourself. And it's like, man, she she is, she looks like, she looks like me. She talks like me. She smiles like me. She smells like me, all of that good stuff. And, and so I think exactly what you said, Dr. A, unlike the black squares without the caption, we're not just seeing this and, and having to make our own story or our own narrative about it. Not only do we see it, but she's speaking about it. And so we talk about representation. I think about her, of course, you know, as a woman of color, as a, as a Black woman, I think about her as a woman who, her mom being a, Shamala being a, a single parent and raising her. So also, what does that represent? And so little girls seeing that, although it may be me and my three sisters, is like, look at what she was able to do and, you know, or, or those whose fathers were not as present, perhaps, in mm-hmm. their in, in their lives. And so it's just representation on all different parts. And so finding a little piece of yourself saying, oh, wow, look at that. Oh, that's like my family. Wow, look at that. And look at where she is right now. And so the joy that it brings me, but also from this side of us knowing how hard and how difficult it is for us to, to get to certain places. You know, how many barriers, um, you know, were in the way. That, you know, how we can't just be enough or good enough. I mean, you have to really, really over excel. And so to see her um, carry all of that, carry it so well and to be where she is, man, the joy, the joy, the joy. Yeah. And I think I I was thinking about that and this is not directly correlated, but somewhat correlated. I think early on, you know, there are these roles about, you know, what women, you know, the occupations we're supposed to have. Mm. And even if it's like, you know, you know, in, in churches, perhaps, you know, can a woman be a pastor and just so much like what, you know, what's a woman's job and what's a man's job. And so here you are looking at one of the most powerful positions in the country and seeing her a representation of us in that position. Man, yeah, it is freeing in so many ways, in so many ways. Completely agree with everything. Yes, I, I joy <laughs> is the perfect word to to really kind of capture that feeling. <laughs> so I yeah. really appreciate you both for sharing so openly all of your feelings and thoughts about all of this. 
please let people know where we can find you, Dr. Joy. Go ahead and tell us your website as well as any social media handles you'd like to share. Absolutely. So I'm all over social media at Ask Dr. Joy. That's A-S-K-D-R-J-O-Y. Ask Dr. Joy. That's also my email address and my website. That's www.drjoybeckler.com. Perfect. Dr. A. Listen up. <laughs> um, so I'm my the name of my practice is Ascension Behavioral Health. Um, so my website is ascensionbehavioralhealth.com. Um, I do most of the running of my mouth on Instagram. So which is at Dr. Underscore Ayana underscore A. Um, again, so that's at Dr. Underscore A Y A N N A underscore A. Um, and I can be found on Facebook at Ascension Behavioral Health. Perfect. Well, thank you both again. Like I said, we will be including all of that information in the show notes. Um, And thank you again for visiting with us. Thank you for having having us. us. I'm so glad that Dr. Beckwith and Dr. Abrams were able to join us today. To learn more about them and their work, be sure to visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 181. And don't forget to text two sisters right now and tell them about this episode. If there's a topic you'd like to have covered on the podcast, be sure to submit it to us at therapyforblackgirls.com slash mailbox. And if you're looking for a therapist in your area, be sure to check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. If you want to continue digging into this topic and chat with some other sisters in your area, come on over and join us in the Yellow Couch Collective, where we take a deeper dive into the topics from the podcast and just about everything else. You can join us at therapyforblackgirls.com slash YCC. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com slash RTP. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girlbomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. 
State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 